everyone. Welcome to this week's Chapter by Chapter Recap. My name is Corey. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey. Hey again. <laughs> we are in the New Testament. So we are doing a chapter by chapter recap for Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV. And we are looking at Matthew chapter 19 to Mark 4 because that was our assigned reading for this week. So we're going to get you caught back up. Lots happens in the Gospels. A yeah. lot. Oh, lots yeah. of teaching. Lots of cool parables. Lots of miracles. Really interesting stuff. So let's just jump right in. Let's do it. Matthew 19. All right. So Jesus begins heading to Jerusalem in Matthew 19. So we see a little bit of a shift here in his ministry. But the Pharisees try to drag him into an argument over divorce, which apparently when you go back into the histories and you look at it was a hot button issue uh, at this time period. And, you know, when was it okay to get a divorce as a good law-abiding Jew? Uh, And the general rule that Christ gives is that divorce was wrong, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, if you're doing a Christian study on when divorce is okay and when divorce is not okay, there is more than just this section of scripture in the New Testament that you have to look at. And in general, there's always going to be little exceptions here and there. But the general rule that Christ gives here in Matthew 19 is that divorce is wrong, except in the case of sexual immorality. We also see the rich young man or the rich young ruler asking Jesus what he needs to do to enter the kingdom of God. You know, he's followed the law all his life. Doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's offered the appropriate sacrifices and things like that. But Jesus tells him specifically, you know, if you want to be perfect, you need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. Follow me. And the rich young ruler leaves sad. And Jesus gives this teaching then on how it's very hard for the very wealthy for the rich to follow God. The idea is that they begin to trust and rely on their treasure here on earth uh, rather than trusting in God. And uh, to add something just real fast, um, this is when some people think it's kind of like out of the blue. They're like, why would he say like to get rid of your wealth? Like, where is that? Right. Right. So actually the Shema, which we always bring up, right? Mm -hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The word strength there, we often today, because we think of the inner strength, like all of your might kind of thing. Yeah. But in Hebrew, it actually connotes more than just your inner strength. In fact, it more strongly connotes all of your resources as a whole, mm-hmm. like your wealth. Mm-hmm. The Aramaic translations actually translated it with all your wealth. They actually just say that. The point is that like it's not just your inner strength. It's all of the strength that you have it's, that you yeah, possess. Yeah, it's your power. All, all that you have, right? Your power. Yeah. So it's So what's interesting here is that like it's in the Shema. This is not something out of the blue for the, the young rich ruler, right? Yeah. He, he would have understood that. But so when Christ says something here, this is just simply intensifying what does the Shema mean? He's not just, you know, saying something that, that would have caught him out of blue. This is a new covenant thing. It's like, no, this has always been there. Yeah. You just have yeah. not intensified it enough in your life. Yeah. I just, I just want to yeah, add that and in. Was he, was he was he doing the bare minimum? He's doing what's required of him by the law. He's giving his tithe. He's That's giving right. his offerings. But what's the intention of his heart in That's, that? And this is what Christ's questions to him would have made him face. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting stuff. 
Okay, Matthew chapter 20. So we've got the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And this illustrates uh, a teaching that Jesus has, the teaching that Jesus has just given in Matthew 19, which ended with the saying, many who are first will be last. So many who are first in the world will be last in the kingdom of heaven. And many who are last in the world will be first in the kingdom of heaven. So this parable of the workers in the vineyards illustrates that, the first being last and the last being first. Uh, We also get the mother of James and John, the disciples of Christ, asking Jesus if her sons can be seated at his right and left hands in the coming kingdom of God. So they're still envisioning this physical kingdom with actual, you know, social, political, physical power. Jesus answers the men. In the other gospels, we learn that the request is actually coming from them through their mom. They're kind of softening the blow through their mom. Uh, and Jesus says, you know, it's it's God the Father's job to choose all of these these things. It's not Christ's job to choose. Uh, And the other disciples, they overhear this conversation and they get really mad at James and John that they're trying to kind of leverage their way into a higher position than them. But Jesus uses the opportunity, this really interesting opportunity to define what leadership is in the kingdom of God. And that that is its servanthood. It's serving. It's not looking for power. It's 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 helping others. It's not some great, amazing, glamorous, rich, powerful socialite life as it is in in the world today. Matthew chapter 21, this records the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. And the people give Jesus a a proper kingly reception. So they're shouting messianic phrases from the Bible, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a quote from Psalms. Hosanna means save us, God save us. Uh, Jesus then drives out of the Temple Mount people who are buying and selling uh, things. He overturns the tables, the the, the tables of the money changers, claiming that uh, the people are turning God's house from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. So Jesus then begins healing people in the temple complex, and the chief priests and teachers realize at this point they have a massive problem because there are people here all gathered for the Passover festival and Jesus's fame is now going to be spreading far and wide. Uh, Jesus returns to the temple complex the next day and the chief priests and the elders ask him, you know, publicly by what authority he's doing these things. What authority do you have to drive out the money changers to heal people in the temple complex? Jesus reverses the question on them, which is a really interesting way of dealing with it. And he asks them if John the Baptist was from God. Now, they refuse to answer because of the controversy that swirls around John the Baptist. Uh, People love John the Baptist. So to, to give an answer in the negative, they know John the Baptist endorsed Christ as well. So to give an answer in the negative, the people would freak out. To give an answer in the positive would to be kind of backing Christ. So this is not a good situation for them. So they refuse to answer and Jesus refuses to answer them. Jesus also gives the parable of the two sons. Um, essentially, this parable teaches that repentant tax collectors and prostitutes were better children of God 
than the chief priests and the elders. So Jesus is not endearing himself to the <laughs> chief priests and the elders. And this is all public, happening in the temple complex where the chief priests and the elders had authority. This is where they were seen to have authority. Jesus also gives the parable of the tenants to say that the kingdom of God was going to be taken from the chief priests and the elders and given to a people who would actually work for the kingdom of God and not for their own kingdom. All right, Matthew chapter 22, this is various interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Also, we get the parable of the wedding banquet, which is really interesting. Uh, We see that the invited guests who were, you know, invited to the wedding banquet. They're rude and they're evil. So the king replaces them. He invites other people, but the the people that he invites have to ha- have to have the appropriate clothing. They have to be wearing wedding attire, which goes back to the robes of righteousness. It goes back to Zechariah where uh, God provides, the angel of the Lord provides clean clothes, white clothes, the high priest, Joshua, Really cool tie-ins with clothing there. Uh, The Pharisees try to trap Jesus into saying bad things about Caesar because if they can get him saying bad things about Caesar, they can accuse him of being a rebel. And if they can accuse him of being a rebel, they can get Rome to take away their problem, Uh, meaning, you know, kill Jesus. (laughs) So they ask Jesus about paying taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus really schools them. He brings about the image you know, whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God's what is God's. What bears the image of God? People. Right. So give yourself to God. Okay, uh, the Sadducees then, it's their turn up to bat against Jesus. And they ask him about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they they make this complex scenario about a woman who married, you know, different people after her husbands died. And Jesus lets them know that there isn't marriage in the resurrection. It, you know, it's, he makes it sound like we're all individuals before God on our own terms. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, so the legal standing of marriage isn't an issue. Uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees ask Christ what the greatest command is. And this is where the greatest, the the golden rule comes in. Um, So Jesus then questions the Pharisees. Who do you think that the Messiah is? Whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, obviously David's son, because it's the Davidic covenant. Obviously David's son. Jesus then quotes a Psalm in which David calls the Messiah Lord. And he goes, how does this work with your rubric? Because Hmm. fathers don't call their children's children, Lord. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus teaches about the Pharisees and the Sadducees specifically, and it's not great. He essentially tells the people, yes, do what they do, what they uh, say, but don't do what they actually do because they're a bunch of hypocrites. And then he proclaims seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus leaves the Temple Mount, the temple complex, and uh, his disciples draw attention to all these beautiful buildings. The temple had been renovated by Herod the Great. As it was amazing. It was, um, you know, there's all these stats that New Testament scholars can give about how impressive that it was. So when they get to the Mount of, uh, so Jesus, though, prophesies back to them, yeah, it's beautiful, but uh, this is all going to fall. All of it. It's going to be gone. So when they get to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem, across from the Temple Mount, the disciples ask him when it's going to happen. And Jesus launches into a prophecy that 
talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount that happened at the hands of the Roman military in AD 70. Matthew chapter 25, this is the parable of the 10 virgins or the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, uh, which is really interesting. Five are foolish and don't have extra oil for their lamps. Five are wise and have brought extra oil for the lamps uh, just in case the groom is delayed in coming to get his bride and the procession ends up taking longer than expected. The five foolish ones actually end up missing the wedding banquet altogether because their oil runs out and they have to leave to get more. And the point of this is to keep watch, is to be ready. And what's interesting here too, I know when I first became a Christian, I was really struggling with this whole concept of why is Christ taking so long? It's been 2,000 years kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was struggling with this concept of a delay. And specifically in the parable, when it's talking about his return, this parable says here, when the bridegroom's delayed, it's like letting you know, listen, there's going to be a delay. Yeah, That's the idea. And, it's like, and don't fall asleep mm-hmm. during this delay. And so I remember that, that just being very strong, a very yes. strong case. I remember like, what, like, I've, like all the apostles think it's imminent. They all think it's happening right now because it very well could be. It very so, well so you've got to bank on what, what yeah. could be, right? But it, And it, you got to stay awake. You got to have that energy. You got to be right. ready. So it, it, it's just, that remember really got me. So it's like, uh, it was just like, okay, there is going to be a delay. You just don't know when because you don't know the day or hours 24 says. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, then Jesus gives the parable of the bags of gold. And this is about a master who went away and entrusted money, his gold, to his three servants. The first two servants end up multiplying the gold, but the last one doesn't actually do anything with it um, and loses it altogether when his master comes back. Now, the moral of the story appears to be, it's how, how I understand it, is that Jesus is going away, that he has entrusted his kingdom to his servants, and he expects them to be good stewards and to grow the church, to grow the kingdom of God. Uh, there's also the parable of the sheep and goats uh, in that when Christ returns, he will separate the true sheep from the goats, the true believers whose faith has inspired them into action and the false believers whose faith has actually made them complacent. Right. Matthew chapter 26 is a big chapter. We're given the confirmation of a plot by the chief priests and the elders and the high priest Caiaphas specifically to arrest and kill Jesus. We have Jesus anointed at the home of Simon the leper at Bethany, and an unnamed woman anoints Jesus's head with expensive perfume. Now, this kind of event likely happened multiple times. We know it happened at least twice because there's another account in Luke's gospel, but all of the details, a lot of times people say that this is the same event. I don't believe that it was because all of the details are different, the place, the home, the the circumstances, except that it's a woman anointing Jesus with expensive perfume. So the act of her putting this expensive perfume on Christ, it seems like a waste to the disciples because it's really expensive. She could have given it to the poor, right? Jesus corrects the disciples, but Judas is now determined to betray Christ. Uh, we've got the Last Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, which is interesting because in Matthew here, we see Jesus setting this up pretty secretively, almost cloak and dagger, right? He doesn't tell the disciples where they're going to be celebrating Passover. He's like, go into the city. You're going to see a certain man. You're going to say these words. He's going to bring you to a house. It's very cloak and dagger. Now, this potentially could have been because Jesus knew uh, 
of Jesus of Judas's plot to betray him. So Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover. He wanted to institute uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. Um, you know, in this, this is really emphasized with Matthew's focus here on being Jesus, uh, letting them know one of you is going to betray me. Um, Right. So maybe maybe someone asked them, why is this all so secret? Well, one of you is going to betray me. Right. Right. So Jesus predicts that. So during the Passover meal, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him during his trial. Uh, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane or the Garden in Gethsemane, I should say. And Jesus is praying. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, but they keep falling asleep. Jesus is arrested. Um, Judas, of course, leads a party of armed people to arrest Christ uh, with the chief priests and the elders. Uh, Jesus goes before the high priest Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin. We're told that false witnesses came forward and accused Jesus, uh, but they weren't agreeing with one another. So the, the, the chief priests were having a really hard time getting the stories to line up, but finally they get two to agree, two witnesses to agree against Jesus. Um, Jesus finally answers a direct question about if he is the Messiah. He agrees to it uh, and adds to it. Yes, and you will see. And uh, now they can charge Jesus with blasphemy because he has claimed to be the Messiah. They begin to mock Jesus by hitting him, spitting on him, saying things like, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Which one of us hit you? Um, and we also have a record of Peter denying knowing Jesus three times. What's interesting too is about Peter denying Christ was that when Christ says, you're going to deny me, he goes, no, 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 I'm mm -hmm. not going to deny him. He's so cocksure that none of this will, will happen. And you, you see this, this is the case with Peter quite often. When uh, Jesus says he's going to die, he's like, no, like uh, you can't die, right? You're the Messiah, right? He follows his emotions. Yeah. He's he, like, impul he impulsively follows his heart. That's right. And he's not, he's not tr intentfully trying to do wrong. We know mm -hmm. that Jesus even says, you know, get behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. He even says stuff like that. So mm -hmm. it really makes you think about, despite your own good intentions and despite your what you heart, like Christ really knows you better than you know yourself. But also, too, it really shows you how presumptuous we can be Absolutely. within our own characters. Not even, we can just assume that we're right. Right, and assume everyone else is wrong because that's what he's essentially mm -hmm. saying. I would no, never do this. I would never do that. Right, you're, you're wrong. Like it's Christ talking to you, the person that you have right. said is the Son of the Living God. Right. So, and you're like, no, no, no. Oh, there's no, <laughs> there's no way I would do that. So it's like it yeah. really just goes to show you the blind spot that sin's made in in our in our hearts, and the, that call for humility, not to be so presumptuous, absolutely, not to assume that you know absolutely yeah. what you're right so it's like well and i w one thing that that's really interesting to me when we're talking about this and and peter impulsively following his heart and impulsively following his emotions is peter is doing exactly what our culture tells us to do today yeah like exactly quintessentially <laughs> yeah. this is who we're supposed to be right we're supposed to follow our hearts we're supposed to trust ourselves we're supposed to believe in ourselves yeah we're you know the, yeah. and 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 it's shown here in peter it fails. <laughs> this fails, guys. Yeah, it totally fails. But yeah, it's uh, just one of those things to, to, to just essentially meditate on, just like mm -hmm. knowing that like there are blind spots. Mm -hmm. Don't be so presumptuous in your own ability. Yes. Right? Don't just assume that you know everything and everything, mm -hmm. right? That you know better. Mm -hmm. um, you can perfectly follow your heart. 
you can perfectly do the things that our culture says you should do. Right. Like perfectly follow your heart and still be wrong. That's right. And still do things that are terrible. That's right. And that need forgiveness. That's right. Peter learned it 2,000 years ago, and now we get to learn from Peter. That's right. Matthew chapter 27. So out of remorse, we get Judas hanging himself once he realizes that Christ is going to be murdered. He's uh, in uh, Matthew quotes Jeremiah's prophecy here in regards to Judas because he hangs himself out of remorse, but uh, first he throws the 30 pieces of silver that he was paid uh, for Jesus's life back into the temple. So uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, you know, back Old Testament, Jeremiah uh, operates as a, as a sort of typology here, a type of what happened in Jeremiah's life was a type of what would happen to the Messiah. Uh, but his quote, it, Matthew's quote here of Jeremiah is actually more than this. Uh, it's more than Jeremiah. It's a composite, so a mixture of Jeremiah and Zechariah, because there's also a prophecy in Zechariah that talks about the 30 pieces of silver when it's talking about the good shepherd. All right, so we get the record of Jesus before Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. So he's responsible for keeping the peace in Judea for Rome. So Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews, which Jesus affirms, yes, I am. But he won't respond to any of the other accusations that the priests are lobbying against him of dissension, of, you know, you know against them, against Rome, against all that. So Pilate gives the people a chance to release Jesus, but they choose a well-known infamous prisoner. Instead, Pilate ends up washing his hands of the matter. He doesn't want to be guilty of it, but he still orders Jesus flogged and crucified. So it's a little bit of playing both sides of the fence. We get an account of Jesus's crucifixion here in Matthew chapter 27 and an account of his death. Matthew includes the detail that he's the only gospel author that does this. He includes the detail that when Jesus died, there was an earthquake earthquake that split the curtain of the temple and broke open the tombs. Then Matthew says that after Jesus rose from the dead, Certain righteous people, this is three days later, certain righteous people also rose out of their broken tombs and testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, so then he backtracks and he talks about the burial of Jesus's body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and a guard, a Roman guard, um, is set at the tomb to prevent robbery of the tomb. Matthew 28, which is the last chapter of Matthew, um, an earthquake, another earthquake happened as an angel of the Lord rolled back the stone from the tomb entrance of Christ. And then he sat, They, this angel sat on the stone and the guards became like dead men. They were totally freaked out by what they saw. And then the women followers, the women disciples of Christ come to the tomb and we're told that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary. And they speak to the angel and then they run to tell the disciples uh, that Christ is gone, that he has risen, and Jesus actually meets them. Now, we're going to learn later that this account in Matthew is a generalized account. It's just telling you generally what happened, and some of the other gospel authors are going to fill in the details of what happened when Jesus met the women and when the women went to the tomb and all that good stuff. So the chief priests and the guards 
meet up and they agree with a very large sum of money to say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So the cover story, right? Um, Resurrected Jesus meets the disciples in Galilee and gives them the great commission to spread the gospel and make disciples. And that's how the book of Matthew ends. Right. And it it ends on this kingdom building uh, uh, process or uh, appeal or commission. Sorry, I I couldn't find the word Mm -hmm. for some reason. Uh, which is which is exactly what Matthew really like nails home is this idea that Christ is the son of David that he yeah. is the king and that he's building a new kingdom and this is how you go about the kingdom mm-hmm. baptize the name of the father son and the holy spirit right teach in my name make disciples right etc mm-hmm. etc et so it's Matthew really sends home the fact that the kingdom of heaven that he uses particularly as opposed to the kingdom of god everywhere else is like central to this gospel uh, message. Yeah. And and that's really important because I don't yeah. we can't forget that the kingdom which includes Christ's glorified flesh when he ascends which we're, we're going to read about even more more about. It's all about this day to come. And he really sends that I think Matthew more so than the other ones really sends home this gospel mission is Christ is the son of David. He says it eight times. And he's son of David but yeah. also son of Abraham. So in Christ yes. is the realization of the hope, the original hope. Of Israel, right? Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like, right? In Christ is that realization of the hope, and that hope is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, and I, I think it, he just, I think more than the other gospels, really sends that home. Mm-hmm. Really sends that home. That that one of many points that we should really be thinking about. We can't we can't just reduce the gospel to just one thing, right? Yeah. We need to be have it needs to be much more broad because it is. It's it's not just a, it's a kingdom, but it's more than a kingdom, right? It's like mm-hmm. there's so many things that go with it. Anyways, that's great. I, I just uh, wanted to. Okay, so we have to look at Mark chapters 1 to 4 to round out this week, our reading for this week. Okay, so Mark 1, we're starting a gospel, a new gospel. Uh, So who who is Mark? So Christian tradition just quickly associates this gospel to John Mark, uh, who we meet in Acts chapter 12. So he's a fellow Christian traveler with Peter, the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, Simon Peter. And this gospel is said to have been based off of Peter's accounts of Christ, um, according to a recorded witness from the first century, okay? So that's just some background on who Mark is. Now, Mark's gospel begins, really interestingly, with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight straight paths for him. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. And this is an introduction to John the Baptist. So, uh, John the Baptist baptized and ministered in the Judean wilderness, and he preached a baptism of repentance, repentance to God for the forgiveness of sins. And he also preached that someone greater was coming after him. Uh, So we see in Mark chapter one, we see the baptism and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness in a really brief format. So none of the actual temptations are gone into like they were in Matthew, uh, just that it happened, that he was baptized, that he was tempted in the wilderness. Um, we're also told that after John's imprisonment, Jesus goes to Galilee and begins proclaiming the, that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. So the people needed to repent. So you get this much more condensed version of what Matthew has flushed out. We see that Jesus's calling of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, uh, 
as disciples and we see Jesus beginning to teach in the Capernaum synagogue how he casts out a demon out of a disruptive man in the synagogue, which is interesting. We see him healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law and uh, at sunset. So after the Sabbath was officially over, we're told that people in Capernaum began to bring their sick to Jesus for him to heal. And Mark makes a note that Jesus casts out demons but he doesn't allow those demons to testify about him. So Jesus has the power not only to cast out demons, but also to silence them. So Mark is Mark is focusing on very quickly showing all of the things that made the people realize that Jesus was more than just a man. Mm. He was more than just a teacher. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. So this is what Mark really focuses on, especially in chapter one. So we see Jesus and his disciples traveling throughout Galilee, preaching and healing. Jesus heals a leper and tells him to go to the temple and offer his sacrifices, but not to tell anyone. And again, the leper doesn't listen. And the result is that Jesus couldn't openly just enter a town because he would be swarmed by people. So we see his ministry being a lot of teaching in the wilderness. Mark chapter two records the conflicts with the religious leaders beginning. Uh, So Jesus as a new religious leader naturally comes head to head with the normal religious leaders and it doesn't it doesn't go well often uh, Jesus goes home to Capernaum and the house gets swarmed again with people so Jesus preaches to them and this is the incident where the paralyzed man gets brought to Jesus through the roof in Capernaum uh, which is very cool because there's archaeological like in Capernaum that that could have happened very right. easily because of they they were mostly one-story homes and how the roofs were built it's fun I just like that kind of stuff <laughs> but anyway Jesus tells the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. Ooh, this this causes an uproar with the teachers of the law in the area. They were they were there. They were listening. They were testing Jesus, and now he's claimed to do something that only God can do. And then Jesus heals the man as proof that he can, in fact, also forgive sins. We're told Jesus calls Levi, who we know is also called Matthew, uh, the tax collector at Capernaum. And Jesus is criticized for associating with sinners like this. And Jesus responds that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Uh, Again, John's disciples question Jesus about why Jesus's disciples don't fast like they do, don't fast like John the Baptist's disciples do, uh, and he answers that question. But then Jesus also claims to be Lord of the Sabbath when he and his disciples pick some grain heads to eat, which again, does not go over well with the religious leaders. Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man's hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, so he's doing work on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus appoints the 12 apostles and we're told that he named si- um, uh, he named Simon Peter. So Peter's name that he he goes by, he originally generally went by Simon. So now he goes by Peter. Uh, and we're also told that Jesus called James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He called them the sons of thunder. So he had different nicknames for his for some of his disciples. Uh, we're also told in Mark chapter three that Jesus's biological family, his mother and his brothers, they actually come to Galilee and they try to rein Jesus in. They're like, okay, okay, this is a lot of conflict. This is a lot of hoopla. Uh, And the religious leaders claim that Christ is possessed by the prince of demons, which is what is giving him his power. Right. And in that, 
they he's called it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Mark Oops. gives probably the, the strongest account for what that means. Yes. And right here in uh, verse 30, he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Yeah. So this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was them being like, oh, he's Beelzebub. He's, uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's demonic. Like when he's healing yeah. people, he's doing good things. He's claiming things in the name of God that are actually being done. Right. In evil. Right. So as Mark there gives the account that says, because for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, they were challenging not just Christ, the person, or God the Father. They were like, this Holy Spirit is doing evil. So they had this mis- complete misunderstanding with the Holy Spirit. I know this is a big, bigger topic we could talk about on a later date. Mm-hmm. But in there, I think Mark just gives kind of nails home where that's what it is. That's what they're challenging. They're saying that his pure spirit that's doing these, the power of the spirit is evil. Mm-hmm. And then once you kind of go down that road, once you make good that evil, it's kind of like, there's kind of like no going back at that point, especially the Holy Spirit, like that, right, that right. concept. <clears throat> Anyways. Okay, Mark chapter four, our last chapter of our assigned reading. Uh, we get parables, parables from Christ about the kingdom of heaven. So we get the parable of the sower, which is interestingly told, interestingly, Jesus told the parable of the sower from a boat so that people could hear him. And maybe, maybe so that he wasn't interrupted by sick people, maybe, <laughs> you know, get on a boat separate yourself a little bit so that you can actually get through some teachings, perhaps. Um, so the parable of the sower really demonstrates people's different reactions and responses to the word of God. Uh, we've got the parable of the lamp on a stand, which was meant to represent Jesus and his words and actions and how his words and actions actually reveal the condition of people's hearts as they listen to him, which is an interesting thought. Uh, so responding positively will mean that you will grow more, but responding negatively means that you lose everything. Jesus also told them the mustard seed parable. So the beginning of the kingdom of heaven may be pretty unimpressive, but its end will be extremely impressive. It will be very grand. And we're also told that Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee from that very boat Mm. in Mark chapter four. And that's it. That that concludes our assigned reading for this week. Awesome. Anything else to add? No, I think we're good. (laughs) Okay, guys, we're looking forward to this week continuing to read through Mark uh, and moving on into Luke as well. So happy studying. Until next time, we'll see you. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.